John chapter 15. We're kind of delving right into the middle now of a discourse with Christ, with his disciples in the upper room. We read, and this is Christ speaking in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 16, and we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Verse 4, we have the word of Christ coming to us to abide in me. And I in you, abide in me. That's the term you may have noticed that occurs again and again in this chapter. And it's most closely connected to the idea conveyed to us in the first verse that Christ is the true vine, his father the husbandman, and we are the branches. And in connection with that, and that is a picture, really, of our union to Jesus Christ. In connection with that, we are called upon to abide in him. Did you notice how often that word occurs in the verses that we read? Let me trace them for you. Verse 4, follow along with me. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you except ye abide in me. 
Verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him bringeth forth much fruit. Verse 6, if a man abide not in me, he's cast forth as a branch and is withered. Verse 7, if ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Jumping down to verse 9, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. And I'll give you one guess as to the word that, what that word continue is uh, in the original Greek. It is the same word as abide. Could be translated, abide ye in my love. Verse 10, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you. And here again, another quiz, what does that word remain mean in the original Greek? What is the Greek word behind it? It is the same word for abide or continue. So you see that uh, the translators of the authorized version uh, are utilizing not simply the same term, but in the original, uh, the term is identical. That's verse 11, okay. Um, one more, verse 16. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. There's our word again that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. So what an emphasis on abiding in Christ. And the primary idea behind abiding is to remain or continue or to dwell. If you were to take this word study and expand it beyond John 15 to include uh, its usage throughout the Gospels, you would find that very often the idea that is in mind here pertains to abiding in a home, dwelling in a home, remaining in a home, okay? So that's the primary idea behind the term. Certainly the idea of rest would spring from this concept. We're instructed by Christ to rest in him. So a good part of abiding is simply resting. We're called upon very simply to recognize our position in Christ and our union to him. Certainly the imagery of a vine with its branches underscores that truth. A branch has a position in a vine, and that same branch, you could say, is in union with that vine. It's a part of the plant the vine and the branches. The idea not only of rest, but the idea of dependence is brought out in the imagery of a vine and its branches. An isolated branch will die. A branch connected to the vine will thrive. It will live, it will grow. All that is needed for its growth is supplied by the vine, and of course, Christ is that vine. You would think that this would be 
the simplest precept for a Christian to follow, wouldn't you? Abide in Christ, rest in Christ, contemplate your position in Christ, think upon your union to Christ. Rather interesting to note that uh, two very different ideas have uh, been in style, so to speak, with regard to our union to Christ. The Roman Catholic view viewed it simply as communion. Okay, they took union to mean communion. And at times they point out, and you could largely affirm this based on experience, at times our communion with Christ is wonderful. At times we are enjoying fellowship with him. At times we sense his nearness and his love fills and thrills our souls. At other times, maybe not so much. Maybe through spiritual negligence or just the mundane activities of the day, our communion with Christ, um, uh, it, it wanes. It, it, it grows cold, so to speak, which then gave uh, the Roman Catholics the idea that our union to Christ is something that can be strong or can be weak or something that can be lost altogether for a time. The Protestant idea emphasized the truth that no, our union to Christ is a positional thing. It does not wane. And they drew a distinction, the Reformers did, between union and communion. They acknowledged the truth that there are times when communion, fellowship with Christ is good, is intimate, is sweet, is blessed, but at other times, uh, not so much. Uh, there are high tides and low tides when it comes to our communion with Christ, but that is altogether a different notion. That is in the realm of experience, but has nothing to do with us positionally. Positionally, our union with Christ is something that is hard and fast. It's settled, okay? Another way to think upon the practice of abiding is found in a word we find Paul using on numerous occasions in his epistle to the Romans. It is the word yield. Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, Romans 6.13. I know other versions emphasize the action of the Greek term used there, that term yield. It's actually the same word that occurs in Romans 12 and verse 1, where Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The word present in that case is the same as the word yield. Yet they're two very different ideas, aren't they? There is an action, you could say, in presenting or offering ourselves behind the concept of yielding. I like the authorized version's translation of the term because it brings out the idea of simply surrendering or resting in the truth of what we are in Christ. We yield to the glorious truths of the gospel. We don't see many yield traffic signs anymore, do we? Maybe I'm giving away my age here. Some of you 
it's quite possible you have never ever seen a yield traffic sign. Um, they're those yellow triangular signs have the big word yield written across them. Sometimes you may see one on a rural road somewhere along the way. I can remember one occasion, I think I was parked at a gas station, there was a road across the street, and I could make out the speed limit for that back road. You know what it was? 27 miles an hour. <laughs> you ever seen a speed limit of 27 miles an hour? It's what it was on that road. Well, I, I suppose same category as the yield signs. And what happens when you come to a yield sign was that you have to stop or you at least have to slow down and then watch for traffic coming through the intersection. If traffic is coming, you stop and wait or you yield to it. And once then you know that the intersection is clear, then you're allowed to proceed. A little bit different from a stop sign. In the spiritual realm, you could say the same thing applies. We stop, or at least we should slow down and watch. There is at least for an instant uh, a cessation of activity. We must stop and contemplate spiritually what we are in Christ. Stop or yield to the truth of the gospel. Think about it. Meditate upon it. How are you related to Christ? How close are you to him and he to you? And then as a result of resting in him, we in turn present ourselves for service to him. I think this truth is illustrated in Isaiah chapter 6. That's the chapter where you find Isaiah beholding the glory of Jehovah in heaven. You have the scene there of the angels with six wings, with two they cover their faces, with two they cover their feet, with two they fly, and they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And upon seeing such a glorious sight, um, Isaiah uh, is stupefied, you could say. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen uh, the Lord of hosts. So you have uh, in Isaiah there something of an example of uh, how he is stilled, how he ceases from all activity, and he simply beholds the Lord's glory, and afterwards there follows his presentation of himself to God, when he says, here am I, send me. Now I dare say that as wonderful as this precept of abiding in Christ is, as wonderful and simple as it should be, we oftentimes find it to be a daunting challenge. Remember the context of this discourse for Christ in John 15. This is a continuation, as I said when I started, uh, of a discourse that actually began back in chapter 13. Christ has been explaining to his disciples that he must leave them. His work calls for him to tread alone his, cross, his path to the cross. 
And when his work there is accomplished, he will return to heaven and reign at the right hand of his father. The disciples didn't understand it. Their understanding was limited, and the only thing that they were able to grasp with any measure of certainty was the fact that Christ was going to be leaving them. And they were troubled. And so their hearts are troubled. Christ says to them, chapter 14 and verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. And he says that to them because their hearts were very troubled or agitated, anxious, and sad at the notion that Christ would be departing. They've lost their peace. Their souls are agitated. And it is this troubling of the heart, which oftentimes is traceable to our limited understanding of God's will and God's ways, and it makes it difficult to simply rest in the Lord. It becomes a spiritual battle, then, to abide in Christ. And even though our position in Him never changes, our union to our Savior is perpetual. We cannot deny, however, that there are times when we are robbed of the peace and joy of our union and position because of the troubling of our souls. And we have to wage war against the flesh and the world and the devil in order to enter into the joy of our union with Christ. We're able to anticipate such a battle when we read in verse 19. We didn't read this far down, but I call your attention to it now. Verse 19, where Christ says, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Oh, the world loves to view itself as autonomous, or in other words, it is independent from God. The Christian bears testimony against the world by acknowledging his complete dependence upon God and upon Christ. And in that dependence, the Christian enjoys the love of God while the world is repulsed by such love and grace. So the world declares war on the Christian. The world will ever endeavor to challenge the Christian's rest. And the Christian rebukes the world when under the pressures of life, the world can still observe the Christian still abiding in Christ's love, resting in it, knowing the truth and reality of it, no matter what the circumstances of life are. This whole idea of laboring to rest is brought out in a text I find very fascinating in Hebrews 4.11, which exhorts us, listen to this now, ask yourself, uh, does this make sense? How does this make sense? Where the apostle writes, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Let us labor to enter into that rest. It seems kind of paradoxical, doesn't it? Laboring to rest? Isn't labor the very opposite of rest? You would think the text would read, let us relax in order to enter into that rest. 
Let us lay aside our labor in order that we may rest. But in fact, we have to labor to enter into it. And the text makes it plain where the labor must be exerted. The exhortation is being contrasted to the example of those who fall away through unbelief. So now the challenge is clear. Now the battle lines are drawn. If we would rest or abide in Christ, it takes the activity, the action, the labor, if you will, of our faith. We exercise our faith. The key to abiding, you see, is believing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he died for your sins. Believe that you are joined to him, that you have a position in him that makes you his. Believe that you're joined to him. Believe in his love to you. And it is Christ's love in particular that is singled out as the realm in which we must abide or believe. Continue ye in my love, he says in verse 9, and as I pointed out, um, continue equals abide in the original term. So continue in my love. Continue to affirm it. Continue to believe in it. This exhortation from Christ is couched in the assurances of his love. Earlier in verse 9, he says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Verse 12, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. There is the greatest manifestation of love that divine wisdom could uh, conceive and demonstrate. Christ laying down his love for his friends. That's where you have to be drawn to when you find yourself tempted to gauge his love by whatever your personal circumstances happen to be. Don't look at circumstances with the eye of the flesh. Look at the love of Christ with the eye of faith and plead with the Holy Spirit to minister the reality of it to his heart. Christ did lay down his life for his friends. Rather ironic, isn't it, that at the very time the disciples understood Christ's love the least, he was in fact manifesting it or about to manifest it the most. They thought perhaps Christ was angry with them. How patient he had been with them and how dull and slow to learn they had often been. How many times had Christ challenged them and rebuked them for their little faith or for seemingly having no faith? Was he departing from them now because he was angry with them? Had they succeeded in trying his patience to, to its limit? How often we tend to reason the same way. And I come back to a point I've made many times that is oftentimes our sins and our consciousness of sin leads us to doubt and in turn keeps us from our rest. We read the providences of God as tokens of his displeasure. That's what the disciples were doing in this setting. And yet Christ's love had never weakened. 
Indeed, all that Christ was doing on this occasion was governed by his love for his disciples, and all that Christ does in his providential dealings with our souls must be viewed the same way. I know I've stated this on various occasions, a part of Christian liberty that I love perhaps more than any other is the liberty to view every dealing that God takes with me as a manifestation of his love. Doesn't mean that every dealing is pleasant. There is such a thing as divine chastisement. But the thing to keep ever in, in mind is uh, even in his chastisement, it comes not from a judge that's condemning us, but from a heavenly father who loves us and knows what is best for our good and for his glory. And so the way we become convinced that every dealing of God springs from his love is to abide in the truth of verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Oh, make that the place where you cast anchor for your soul. Let that be the lens through which you view every circumstance of life. Greater love hath no man than this. Greater love hath no man than what Christ has demonstrated in laying down his life for his friends. There may be many things that you will go through in life that you do not understand. But here is something that is very clear to understand. Christ laid down his life for us as a display of his love. This then is where we must fix our faith. This is where we must be planted. The firm belief in the truth of Christ's love is what supplies the nourishment, you could say, from the vine to the branches. Now this precept of abiding uh, is essential to the Christian. Look with me at verse 2. Let me read a few verses once again. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean to the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the, van, in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing." If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Oh, you begin to see, don't you, that this is a pretty important matter, this notion of abiding in Christ. It's essential to bearing fruit, and bearing fruit is what proves to the world that we are the disciples of Christ. Abiding in Christ, you could argue, is essential to our joy. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain, might abide in you, and that your joy might be full, verse 11. We must, therefore, abide in the truth of sins forgiven. Abide in the truth that heaven is our home. Abide in the truth that we are the recipients of everlasting life. Abide in the truth that Christ belongs to you and you belong to him. Abide in those things. And finally, we see 
that abiding in Christ becomes essential to our praying. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, and by the way, there's a very practical application of what brings this to pass. Let Christ's word abide in you. Be constantly thinking on that word, reviewing that word, reading that word, memorizing that word. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Verse 7. When we stay close to the Lord Jesus by abiding in his word and basking in his love by faith and following him in the obedience of faith, then our minds become yielded to his will and our desires become yielded to his desires. Our desires become his desires. We can have confidence that uh, the two things come to merge. I think the idea of abiding in Christ is perhaps best expressed in Psalm 37. You would care to look that up with me. Psalm 37. And look what it says, beginning in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass, and he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in the way because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. So you see all of these exhortations, commands they are actually, trusting, delighting, committing our way to the Lord, resting in him, verse 7, and in so doing, we pray in his name and we bring forth fruit for his glory. And so I hope and pray that this simple and profound and yet challenging notion of abiding in him may be brought home to your hearts this afternoon. May we rest in our union or our position in him and from that abiding place make our desires known to him in prayer and present ourselves to him after having yielded to the truth of his love. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bring this meeting to a close, we pray that thou wilt help us to hear the words of our Savior as he calls upon us to abide in him. This is a glorious place to be, a wonderful place of bliss and happiness and joy. And yet, Lord, we can't deny that we find it to be a daunting challenge at times. Oh, Lord, may we be ever thinking on the truth of thy love, mindful as we are of how that love was manifested in thine atoning death. And may we, as we abide in thee, Bring forth fruit that will redound to thy glory. So, Lord, stamp thy word on our hearts, and may the Holy Spirit continue to speak on from thy word, even after the voice of man is silent. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.